0: If you have your uh, Bibles open there to Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56, would you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said. to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that is with Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for the kicking off of the Advent season. And Father, we ask if you would, please bless this time of worship. Please bless our efforts. And oh God, let us be changed by the power of your word today. So in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question this morning how do you handle giving gifts what kind of a gift giver are you I've sort of come to the conclusion that there are really two or three types of gift givers some are reluctant gift givers and I'm confident none of you are in that category Uh, and then others are gift givers that love to relish uh, giving a gift as a surprise making sure the gift is given at the appropriate moment, making sure we wait until the birthday or we wait until Christmas or we wait to give it. And then there is a third category, and that's the people that as soon as they buy the gift, they can't stand it any longer, and they immediately want to give the gift to the person. They sometimes don't even take time to wrap it. They just hand the gift over because they're so excited about it. Two of those categories live in my household. And often are giving gifts together to other people that live in the household, and we find ourselves on opposite ends of how that should be handled at times. And so, but I am so thankful that oftentimes Whitney makes me wait to give presents. So, um, all that being said, as soon as something is in my hand, I'm ready to give the gift. I, I can't resist that impulse to give a gift. As soon as possible. I always say it's as much of a surprise now as it will be then. You know, in fact, it's more of a surprise if you get it a few days early. Anyway, all that being said, um, I, I have a hard time waiting. If you didn't know that about me, Advent's an important season for me because it presses me into remembering the waiting, uh, the the not yet of things. Maybe us don't know this, but uh, in earlier centuries, historically, in uh, more liturgical traditions, the four Sundays of Advent were actually the Sundays where they focused on the four last things, which is uh, death and judgment and heaven and hell. Merry Christmas. And, uh, and, and so uh, I say all that to say, uh, this was a time not only, as we usually think about it, to reflect back on the waiting that the people of God experienced in waiting on the coming of the Messiah. But also, guess what? We are a people who have received her King, but at the same time, we are also a waiting people, are we not? The Bible actually speaks of two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first has already happened, and the other, the second coming, the second advent of the Lord Jesus, hasn't happened yet. And so for me, Advent is an important season because it presses me into the not yet. It presses me into the waiting. I I like immediacy. I like to celebrate. I love joy. I love happiness. But I need to be reminded during this season that true joy is worth waiting for and that true joy exists even in challenging times. Others of us here, though, today might be in seasons of waiting of, of our own. Seasons of darkness, maybe, even seasons of grief. Uh, Some of you might be thinking about death and judgment and heaven and hell and feeling kind of weird about it uh, because everyone else seems to be celebrating Christmas. But those of you who are in those types of seasons, Advent is for you as well. It's a reminder in these weeks leading up to Christmas that God is still at work. And yet, even in seasons of waiting, even in seasons of grief, even as we kick off the Advent season here at First Baptist Church, we are called to rejoicing. We we are called to rejoice. What is there to rejoice in? For, For those of us who are struggling, but even for those of us who are joyful, as we enter into this Advent season, we must ask the question, what should we be rejoicing about? And today we turn our attention to the mother of our Lord, Mary, who sings a song of rejoicing. Here in the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be in the songs of Luke Chapters 1 and 2. Your Advent devotional is rooted in Luke. And uh, our theme for Advent this year is, Come Let Us Adore Him. So I thought it might be good from Luke for us to focus on how the earliest people who encountered the incarnate Christ, how did they rejoice? What did they rejoice over? What exactly did they adore about Jesus? And so this morning we turn our attention to Mary to Mary's song, and we want to look today to her song that's now known as the Magnificat because that word, uh, my soul magnifies the Lord in Latin was Magnificat. So in church history, this song has come to be known as the Magnificat. And as we look to this, we hear Mary say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What do we have to rejoice about? i want to show you today three truths that I believe will lead you, should lead you to rejoice in Christ. Three truths that will help you mark this Advent season with rejoicing. Here, here's the first. Here's the first. We rejoice in God's blessing in Christ. Uh, we rejoice in God's blessing in Now, I've already said this, but it's, it's worth repeating. Mary, in this song, is rejoicing in God. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says in verse 46. Verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why is Mary rejoicing? And if she's rejoicing, why should we rejoice? For, verse 48, he who is mighty, that's God, has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy. I'm sorry, verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Skip a verse. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. All generations, Mary says, will call me blessed. Now, we hear this word and some of us uh, immediately go certain places. Some of you probably go immediately to, you know, hashtag blessed or something like that. As you start to think through, what does it mean to be blessed? Most of us, when we hear all generations will call me blessed, whether this is really what we think or not. Our instinct, as soon as we hear the word "blessing," is to think about what material blessings. Material blessings. Now, rightfully, at Christmas time, we think about how to bless others with material blessings. We think about our health. We think about all the ways God has blessed us, and we think about that. And there's biblical precedents for this. When Abraham and David and others in the Old Testament followed the Lord, they received blessings. God blessed them materially. But but notice what Mary says. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is a reference to Mary's material means. Uh, Joseph and Mary were not rich people, in other words. They weren't wealthy, well-to-do people. Mary's saying, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And what does it say? It says, behold, from now on, all generations will call me Blessed. Now, Mary understood herself to be blessed of God. Mary understood herself, as we'll see in the rest of the passage, to be a recipient, in so many ways, a vehicle of God's promise of blessing through Abraham to the world. In other words, Mary sees herself in the long line of the promises of God. And yet, when we read the Bible, we read the New Testament, it's very clear to me that God's blessings on Mary did not result in her getting rich. Now, some of us, if we'd been Mary, we might have started the Jesus Christ boyhood tour or something like that. If we'd been Mary, try to capitalize on this situation. But, but think about this for just a moment. We can hardly say that God's blessing meant material blessing to Mary. So what is she saying? God has looked on my humble estate, and, and, and with the way he's blessed me, all generations will call me blessed. And Mary is not saying God's going to fill up my bank account. What is she saying? She's saying that God's blessings transcend our circumstances. Mary is going from someone who is of humble estate to someone who understands themselves as blessed and that others will call her blessed in the process. What is she doing? Why is it that God's blessings to Mary were different than those that he gave to Abraham? Well, God gave Abraham flocks and wealth and all these things, not just so that Abraham could have a lot of money. God gave David and Solomon and other key figures in the Bible, material blessings, not just so they could have a lot of money. God gave them those blessings in order to sustain a people. If you are going to become a nation, it takes food, it takes money, it takes water, it takes those material blessings in order to survive. And so God blessed Abraham and the other fathers in order to sustain them and in order to preserve for himself a people. In other words, what Mary is receiving is the blessing that Abraham and David received blessings for the sake of. God was preserving for himself a people in order that he might keep them alive in the world, in order that the seed of Abraham might come into the world and deliver his people. That is, Mary is receiving the blessing that the people of God were preserved for. That is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it fascinating to think All of those blessings, all of those flocks, all of those riches... All of those things existed. God poured those things out on his people for centuries and centuries in order that a young woman of humble estate might give birth to a baby boy with one of the most common names you could have in ancient Israel, Jesus or Joshua. Think about how simple this seems. And yet Mary is receiving this blessing that God had promised to her ancestors in order order that the world might be blessed through Christ. But, But she doesn't stop there. Notice what she says in verse 50. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. That is Mary saying that God's mercy is for those who are obedient to God, who fear him, have a respect and reverence and honor for the Lord. We sometimes read this and we we misunderstand. Uh, We think that when we obey God, that means he gives us blessings in return, right? That when we obey God, God is merciful to us and takes good uh, care of us. But nothing could be further from the truth. Just think about poor old Job who obeyed God so faithfully and yet did not, in fact, he did not only not receive for a long season material blessings, he had material blessings taking, taken from him. What if I told you this, that what Mary's really driving at is the way that obedience to God, reverence to God is in itself a blessing. It's a blessing to every generation that fears God. From generation to generation, God blesses his people by teaching them obedience, by teaching them the way to live, to teach by teaching them to fear and respect him so they can live in the world he designed the way they should. I'll tell you, when I was young, when I was y'all's age over here in this section, um, following God's laws seemed miserable to me. It just felt like such a drag, you know? My parents would not only asked me to obey God's laws, but they had a few extras, and I had to obey those too. You guys, any of y'all's parents have some extras? I know Watsi's parents have a few extra rules. And then, you know, God says, well, you have to honor your father and your mother, so you have to follow all of them at that point, right? It used to seem miserable to me. It was so frustrating. But, but now as an adult, there is almost nothing I'm more thankful for in life than being taught to respect and fear God. But back then it seemed like a drag that was preventing me from being blessed. Now I look back and I see that teaching, that requirement to obey my parents, that requirement, that teaching to obey the Lord was a blessing to me. What a joy it is now I can see in life because following God's ways is the best way to live a joyful and good life. Obey your father and your mother in order that you might live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. It's the first command that comes with a promise the Bible tells us. And so we look and we can see that we can rejoice in God's blessings in Christ. We can rejoice in the fact God has given us Jesus and we can rejoice in the fact that Jesus by his gospel and by his spirit enables us to live out the blessing of obeying God. And so we rejoice in God's blessing in Christ. And second, we rejoice in God's gospel purpose in Christ. That's our second point. We rejoice in God's gospel purpose, God's purpose in Christ. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Think about the world we live in. Close your eyes with me for a second and imagine the landscape of the world we live in. Who does it seem like is winning in the world we live in? Who does it seem like is winning? Well, if you were to just start listing folks out, I bet everyone's list would have some grouping like this. It seems like people who are proud are winning. People who are strong and powerful and who boast about it and make sure everyone knows how strong they are. They carry a big stick, but they don't speak softly. They boast about it. People who are mighty, we would say. It seems like they're winning. People who have authority, people who have power at their fingertips. What about this? People who are rich. People who are rich. Uh, some of us right now are trying to figure out exactly how we're going to pay for everything we need to pay for this month and the next and everything else. How are we going to give a good Christmas and do all this stuff? And you think the people who are winning are the people that don't have to worry about this stuff. to not worry about money. The People that are rich. And there are people in the world we live in who have so much money, they literally couldn't spend it all if they wanted to. Just can't keep up with all the spending they could do. But I want you to see what Mary's song tells us. Speaking of the Lord, verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away Empty. It looks like the people who are strong and boastful and prideful in this life are the ones who are winning. What does Mary say? It's only God who is truly strong. And though it doesn't always look like it, it's God who has scattered the proud with his strong, outstretched arm. It's God who is truly mighty and he brings the mighty down from their thrones. It is God who is truly rich and the Bible says he has sent those and I think in this context it's clear those prideful, unjust, those who are rich, who are prideful and unjust, he has sent them away empty. But God hasn't only done that but what else has God done? He has taken those who are of humble estate like Mary and he has exalted them. He has taken those that look like they're losing in this life and exalted them. He has taken those who are hungry and he has filled them with good things. We are obsessed in our world with strength and power, but Mary's song paints a different picture of the world as it is. Things look different than they actually are. God does not work the way the world works. In fact, God through Christ, Mary is saying here, is turning the world right side up. People who seem to be losing can win and people who seem to be winning can lose because they think that this life is all there is. And when we think that way, it's a recipe for disaster. But instead, what God is doing is right side upping the world. And Mary recognizes he's doing it through the baby that she carries in the womb. And God's right side upping of the world is cruciformed. It's shaped and patterned after the cross. But perhaps unintentionally or even without realizing it, Mary is nonetheless prophesying here that God will use a lowly, gentle, and humble son to overthrow the powers of the world. That God will use one who was not esteemed in the eyes of the world to conquer the world. God will use one who was seemingly defeated by death to defeat death itself. God will use the one who it seems like was struck by Satan himself. And though he was on the hill, he was using this son to crush the head of the serpent who reigns and rules in this world even now. God is right side upping the world through Christ. And brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in the fact that God has taken the low things of the world. Is there anyone who better exemplifies what it means to be of humble estate than our Lord Jesus Christ? I don't think so. God is turning the world right side up and we can see that it's happening through his gospel purpose in Christ. We rejoice in God's blessing. We rejoice in God's gospel purpose. And finally, we rejoice in God's faithfulness in Christ. God's faithfulness in Christ. You ever waited so long you gave up? I, I bet you have. I bet you've hung up at some point after waiting too long on the phone for somebody to talk to in customer service. I, I bet, I bet some of you might do this this afternoon. I bet you found another place to eat after waiting too long for a table. You might have even been the person in the waiting area leading the revolt. Shouldn't be taking this long, should it? Let's all go somewhere else. You want to go somewhere else? I bet you've lost hope in countless situations because you had to wait so long. Things where the stakes were even higher. But notice what Mary says, verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Can you imagine waiting for the promises of God as long as God's people had to wait for his promises? By the time the New Testament opens, the Lord had been silent for 400 years. Not to mention that the previous prophecies were often about exile, they were about things that were not the fulfillment of God's promises. Everything was always off in the future, everything's always pointing out ahead. It feels like we're always waiting and never fulfilled in the pages of the Old Testament. But what's Mary saying? God has kept His promises. God, God has kept His promises. God has remembered His mercy. And He remembers what He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Mary is recognizing that she is carrying the one who God promised to Abraham. My, my friends, I want to tell you something. God has been faithful in the past and God will be faithful in the future.